My name is Milton, and I'm a grateful alcoholic in other jerks. I'm going to tell you something. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it with all of me. Leo, what are you grinning about? <laughs> I love it. Keep on grinning. It's wonderful. Keep on grinning. I love it. I would like to thank the conference. I'm going to have to look up here and see what it says. The Manitoba Keystone Conference for giving me the privilege, and I do deem it a privilege, to share with you what has happened to me here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank Bob and Jerry and his lovely wife, Phyllis, for making my stay here just absolutely wonderful. As Bob was telling you, I had the opportunity to share out at Stony Mountain, and I would, uh, and they jumped up and got ready to leave. The thought occurred to me, maybe I've got bad breath or something like that. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was a privilege to be there. It's a privilege for me to be able to get up in the morning and breathe in and out. Just breathe in and out. Because one more drink and I'd have missed all of that. I may fumble around here, but that's the way it is this morning. Because... Uh, I never know what I may have to say here because I never, I'm not one of these kind of canned people who talk or hit the opportunity to share. All I know is that I'm an alcoholic. And I became an alcoholic because I drank alcohol. Now that may come as a surprise to some people because they seem to infer that, <laughs> and I love it when they say it, my mother was an alcoholic, my father was an alcoholic, my grandma's grandma was an alcoholic. Thus, I'm an alcoholic. They seem to infer that. I am convinced the only way I became an alcoholic was because I had a spastic elbow. <laughs> I don't know of any other way to become an alcoholic other than ingesting the alcohol. You may have some of the tendencies. You can take the tendencies to your grave, but you won't be an alcoholic. And I've had to get that very clear in my mind. Thinking won't get me drunk. Drinking will get me drunk. Simple stuff. Now, I didn't believe that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time, which was in 1958. And don't try to figure out my age. I look good, hey. <laughs> what you know is that black don't crack. That's what you don't know. <laughs> I tell you, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it. In 1951, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's no doubt in my mind that some people sitting here may have the same kind of thinking I have. By 1951, I had already lost a wife and two children. I had been in four nut wards. I know how to make love to myself. <laughs> in them straight jackets, just wrap tight, you know. <laughs> I had been arrested 20 times. 
And uh, I stood before a judge, and the judge told me he could put me in jail for a year and he would charge me with embezzlement. Because stealing had become a way of life to me. Now, I didn't go hold up any banks and all that kind of stuff. I stole money out of Mama's pocketbook. I stole church money. I did things like that. And I remember insurance man told my mother, if you don't stop this boy from doing things like that, because I took 10 cents to watch. Now, that may not seem as a whole lot of money. Back in those days, they had a thing called Metropolitan Life Insurance, which is still in existence today. And they paid two and three cents and ten cents for their insurance. And I was set down to pay this insurance, this little smart kid I was. And uh, I wanted a box of Cracker Jacks. So I doctored the insurance book and came home and told my mother I paid it. The following week, that insurance man came... To my house, I remember, I was a young kid, I remember his name to this day, his name is Mr. Wilhelm. And he said to my mother, you didn't pay. And my mother said, oh, yes, I did. And uh, she went and got the book that I had doctored. And uh, my mother looked at it, and uh, she said, see, he, he paid. And the doc- this man said, well, there's not my signature. I had forged his signature. And my mother took me aside and she said, son, did you alter this book? And of course, I'm the, I am a professional liar. Oh, no, mama, not me. You know I wouldn't do anything like that. Not me. Not with your money. You know I went all the way down there. And I, I, I paid that insurance. That man is telling something wrong. I wouldn't dare call him a liar. Back in those days, you didn't call older people liars. He's got to be having, he's got to have made a mistake. And, uh, my mother looked at Mr. Wilhelm, and my mother looked at him, and Mr. Wilhelm said to my mother, if you don't do something about this boy, someday he's going to wind up in jail. And in 1951, I stood before a judge, and I had taken some money one more time. I took some money from a cousin of mine who he and I drank, and chased girls, and did things like that, and we, we had a lot of fun. And this one morning, I woke up in the whorehouse that I was trying to be a pimp at, and I was scared of girls. <laughs> my then wife had put me out of the house, and I was getting even with her and my mother both, because I come from one of those families where you had to give your life to Jesus all the time, and I didn't know who he was. And I got even with my mother and my wife, and I moved into a whorehouse that's right across the street from the church they both attended. And uh, I got arrested out of that whorehouse because I used my cousin's money. And I stood before that judge. Now, I am a professional. I am a fabulous liar. God, I can lie. Oh! I know many of you do things like that, but I'm a liar. God, I can lie. I lied so much I believed this stuff myself. I mean, I'm serious. I believed it. When I stood before this judge... And I told him, <laughs> I told him the truth. I absolutely told the man the truth and didn't even know I was telling him the truth. I told that judge that every time I drank, something went wrong. Now, that was the truth. Because every time I drank, something always went wrong. 
I would drink and drink and drink and have to go to jail. I drink and drink and have to go sell blood. I have to drink and drink and have to have to lose a job. Uh, we were talking about somebody said they thought they recognized me this morning. Said they thought I worked with the CP Railroad some time back. You know, I said I said no, not me. But in actuality, I couldn't have stayed with that railroad because I'd have found something wrong with it to get drunk at it, so I'd leave. I was always leaving jobs. I can get a job like that. Because I'm a good liar. I can lie good. And I can leave that job just like that too. Because I'll find something wrong with it. Or I'll find some way that they're doing something wrong that I don't think they know what they're doing. Because I'm a drunk that knows everything. I stood in front of that judge and I also told him that I was a shell shock war veteran. <laughs> I was in the Second World War. <laughs> I've never shot a gun, didn't shoot a gun. But I was stationed right at Treasure Island, California. And the judge didn't know any difference. So I told him I was a, with Colonel Carlson's Second Marine Raiders in Guadalcanal. And that I had been in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They had a little cut under my chin. I still have the cut. And I said, that's what happened when I was in hand-to-hand -hand combat. One of the Japanese soldiers lunged at me. And I just turned my head and he just clipped my chin. I pull my little pant leg up to show him my little skinny, scrawny knees. Because I don't know about most of you guys. I was ashamed of my body, too. Skinny. I was so skinny, you know, you know, a good wind would have blown me away anywhere. And I told him I had these little marks on my knees. I'm just trying to tell you what kind of liar I was. And I had hurt them with a scooter. And they had two little gashes that had healed over. And you would swear that they were bullet wounds. And I told him that's where I got caught machine gun crossfire. <laughs> and through the grace of God, this judge sent me to some members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, one thing I want to add to that was that I told the judge that I loved everybody. That meant him, too. <laughs> that meant my mother. Now, I had a loving mother. My mother was, a, she was a... Her kind of love would have killed me. Her kind of love would have killed me. Because I was her baby. And she too, I know today, was riding under that heavy banner of guilt that all parents run under. What have I done wrong? And I knew how to play that game. I knew how to play on that little harp that she was carrying around with her. And so in order to keep her quiet, because Jesus had a way of telling her, to tell everything. I knew my mother might jump up. Jesus would tell her to jump up and tell that judge how many times she had to pay my rent, how many times she had to pay the gas bills, how many times she had to feed my wife and my children. So I had to keep her sitting down and I told Judge Your Honor, I love everybody. That meant her too. And this judge looked at me and said to me, I will put you on probation for nine months if you'll go and see and visit some people here in this building. And I went to see a man named Frank, and Frank couldn't speak English well. And uh, the first thing he said, so it said to me, so you're another one of those drunks. He couldn't even say drunk. Drunk. And I said, this man can't even talk. You know. Now, you have to remember, I was young, 
And I thought I was good looking and I thought I was God's gift to everybody. Yeah. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and Frank took me there and he met a name, guy named John. And I tell this story because it's important for me to hear it. You see, what I get the opportunity to share about is things that I have to remember. Because I'm absolutely positive I have a mind that's trained to forget. My mind is trained to forget. I look at these little boys and girls running around here. And when one will hurt their finger, they'll come and say, Ooh, Mommy, I hurt my finger. And that little finger will be bleeding and Mommy will take a little... I did my kids take a little magic spit and put on there or, or do something or kiss it and do something. In a half hour's time, they have lost the memory of that pain. And I was the same way. How many times I said, Oh, God, if you just get me off this, I'll never do it again. You know, I forget about the pain, the guilt, and the remorse I used to wake up with and look in the mirror and pull my eyes down and say, what's wrong with you? And the mirror would never answer me back. How many times did I wake up and say, well, I'll never do it again? How many times did I beg that poor first wife I had, oh, Dessa, please take me back. I'll never, ever do it again. And I meant it. I absolutely meant it. I'll go get another job, I'll bring all my money home, I'll give you the money, and I'll let you dole it out to me. And in three weeks' time, I would have gained entrance back into the bedroom again, you know, and everything would be fine, and because everything is fine, it is my nature to screw it up. And if you think I have changed, you're sadly mistaken. I just make different kind of choices today. Because when it's going good, I will find some way to screw it up. Because somehow or other, it keeps me in action. <laughs> well, I started out in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1951, and this old man named John Frank had introduced me to I messed around there in Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, the youngest guy there, you know, and I, I, I don't, I don't make young people feel uncomfortable in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hear people say, well, you young people ought to be happy that you got here on time, you know. You're so young, you got your life ahead of you, and you get yourself together, and you go on, don't get yourself together for God's sake. You did it. You already got yourself together, and look where you're sitting. <laughs> this is not about getting it together. I used to get it together, and every time I would try to get it together, after I'd make all those pledges and promises, and I would seem to all come together, I'd either wind up in jail or some other a strange place. And I was always thinking that's what I had to do, was get my shit together. And I know the feeling when you get, you're frustrated and you're trying to get it together one more time. And you're going crazy trying to get it together. If you're sitting here in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you've done it. Don't try that one anymore. You know. You may not know what to do, but don't do that. John told me something in Alcoholics Anonymous that I heard. I heard the words, 
And no doubt you hear people here will hear words. We're great for hearing words. And they made a little sense. John said to me, Milton, they don't make black and white whiskey because it all gets you drunk. You see, now, I'm a clever alcoholic. I have what I call a genius-type mind. I have the kind of mind that makes puking make sense. Make going to jails make sense. You know, running away from home makes sense. I ran away from home a lot. God, I don't know what the guys did that night. But, man, I ran away, and my wife wouldn't see me maybe three, four weeks later. And I'd go back to my big act. I know how to beg. I'm the best beggar in the world. I'm telling you, man. Beg, please, for God's sake, take me back. I make all kinds of promises. But John said to me, Milton, you don't make this black and white whiskey, because John knew with my clever type mind that I might say, John, well, if you're black like I am, the white man's got his foot on your neck. You're not going to get anywhere in life. So what else is there for you to do? But get drunk and you're going to marry some little dumb girl. And all you're going to do is become a handkerchief head. Now, if you're those who are not familiar with what a handkerchief head is, it's a blat that pushes a broom, and all he says is, yes, a boss. <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those. And John was really telling me, alcohol doesn't care who you are or where you came from. He was really telling me it would cut me off too short to hang up. You see, but if you're young and you're good looking and you're God's gift, you don't believe that. And there's no doubt in my mind that the people sitting here don't believe that. Alcohol does not care who you are. What your statue in life is, because when you're laying in the gutter, there's total equality. <clears throat> he said something else to me. He said, Milton, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous... Now, you got to remember, John was old. Now, John was very old. Now, when you get old like John was, and you have a mind like I have, your mind says, well, when you get that old, you're supposed to quit doing whatever you're doing. It's time for you to get ready to meet your maker. So you better get your stuff together. You know, that's what your mind said. John had say, said, you know, Milton, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous have to love you. Or the resentment might get them drunk. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> you know, you've got to love me. You've got to love me. Isn't that something? You, can't, you cannot permit resenting me to get you drunk, so you've got to... Oh, better act like you love me, one of the two. And I didn't know that at that time, some of my most feverish prayers were being answered. And John said one other thing. He said, Milton, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And I said, gee... I didn't believe him, and I had to die some more. You know, I'm one of these kind of guys that didn't know what love was. Yet I'm one of the kind of guys that when the bed would spin round and round. Some of you have been there, I know. When the bed spin round and round, and you, and you stick your leg out of the bed, and it doesn't stop. You know. And then you go to your prayer act. Oh, God. Oh, God, just stop the bed. You know. And then you start making those great promises. If you, if you just stop this bed, I'll go to church the rest of my life. I'll be a Christian. And the bed doesn't stop. Then you make the one final one. Oh, God, send me one human being to love me like I am. Just one. 
And here John had told me there was a room full of people that would love me just like I was. I didn't know love. And I've come to know why I didn't know love. Because I wasn't loving me. I didn't know how to do that. To make a long story short, I didn't. I hung around Alcoholics Anonymous, staying sober a little bit, getting drunk a little bit, only because I knew the members of Alcoholics Anonymous would tell that probation officer that I wasn't attending meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if a probation officer sent anyone here, or you have court papers like they do in Southern California, sign the court papers yourself. It's all right. The judge doesn't know who the secretary is. He could care less. All they're trying to do is get you off the street. You know. I didn't know at that time that Alcoholics Anonymous was going to contaminate me for the rest of my life. If you're here, and if you haven't got the disease, when you leave here, you will have it. We're here to contaminate you. <laughs> We're like a bunch of vultures, you know. We see a newcomer come in. Back in my day, at least, we saw a newcomer come and we pounced. We pounced right on him, man, and sucked the blood right out of him. <laughs> Because we were aware in those days when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, finally, that that newcomer had the message. He had the message. He had the message that a guy like me, whose mind is trained to forget, that he told me that that stuff was still kicking butts out there, and I didn't have to go out there and find out. I may not like it in here. But I know what's out there and I haven't got to do that. Go and find that out. That's the message. You know, some people say, well, I, they, uh, the young, young, new people coming to Alcoholics Anonymous is a life's blood. Yes, they are. But I'm the vampire. I want to suck it out so I can stay here because my mind is trained to forget. It's just that simple. I'm not here to win, make, you know, make friends and win, uh, make friends and all that kind of stuff. I'm not here for that. I'm not here to influence anybody. I don't need to. I'm here to keep from dying. Because I have a disease that will kill me. I'm not here to find out whether you like me or don't like me. That's unimportant. I've got to learn how to do things that make me like me. And I learn how to do that here. That's what I've learned in alcoholics now. I got drunk, of course, and I got a break and went into show business thinking that show business would be the answer to my life. I'm talented. God gave me a voice. It's his voice. It's his gift. But I thought it was mine. I've always been performing in front of people. I remember that I used to take my mother's cookbook and I would preach to the, to the minister in the church, give him back the sermon that he preached that Sunday morning. Just spitting handkerchiefs like they did too. And you know, keep on going, you know. And they said, oh my Lord, this boy has got it. Jesus is going to bless him. As I was saying, don't put your hands on me. Because they looked like they were getting ready to die. They kept saying, we're going to meet our maker way over yonder on the other side. And I was trying to live. I was desperately trying to live. People just say to me, well, Milton, you're trying to look like you're trying to drink yourself to death. I was never 
not ever trying to drink myself to death. I drank to live. Because I could not live in my skin sober. There was something wrong. I felt very inferior. I felt less than. I felt like a wimp. And there's nobody. The only answer I heard was give your life to Jesus. And I didn't want that. I had well-meaning parents. I had very fortunate parents. They had learned what I've had to learn here. They had surrendered and turned their wills and their lives over to their God. And as a result, in depression time, when people were starving, I was eating. I had clothes. There was food on the table every single day. And what they were doing, what God gave them, they shared with others. And I had to go all the way around the horn to find out that's what I had to do to keep what I have. That's what I've got to do is give away what God has given to me. Without question. Without question. Because this is a rich gift. A member of Alcoholics Anonymous got me on his show. I started broadcasting back on WRTV back in New York, and I perhaps was maybe the first, second, or third black singer on television back in those days. And you'd think my prayer was answered. But if you have a kind of sick ego that I have, I decided to quit Tiny. Guy name was Tiny Fairbanks, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's dead now. To show him how much he really needed me. I knew if I wasn't there, they'd kick him right off that show because I'd become Mr. Wonderful. Strangest thing, I left him, but he stayed on. God gave me another break. I want another big TV show, and some of you might remember. It's called Show of Shows. It was one of the biggest TV shows of its time. Where the big names were on it. Big names. And God had given me the opportunity to do that. And I was singing with a guy that I idolized since I was a little kid. Somebody mentioned the uh, uh, Deep River Boys. Back in those days, listening to jazz where I came from was like a sin. You didn't listen to jazz. I was 17 when I went to my first movie. Everything in my life was sin as I was growing up. Because that was what my parents believed in. Yeah. I had a sinful mind because I had a lot of dirty thoughts in there. Yeah. I brought them little dirty thoughts to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know. I thought what I, whatever I thought, you know, and some of you guys do it. You see a cute little girl walking on her little, she's just wobbling pretty good, you know. And you got those thoughts that run through your head. Oh, yeah, and you're looking. And you're looking. And you get guilty. <laughs> you get guilty for looking. Well, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of mind I had. I brought that mind to Alcoholics Anonymous. Make no bones about it. Yeah. That's the kind of upbringing I had. Everything was guilt. And I listened to radios and stuff like that, and I learned harmony and things like that by listening and singing all the time. And I heard this one group called the Charioteers, and it was a guy that sang like a Markenberg. He had the most gorgeous voice in the world, and I used to imitate his voice. And God had given me the opportunity to sing with this man who I would have been willing to sit at his feet just to learn. And here God said, oh, I'll put you with the best. Best show, best outfit. But see, I'm an alcoholic. And I found a way to destroy that. I was upstaging him and his wife caught me and told me. So I quit them, thinking they would kick them off of show of shows. <laughs> 
It was the strangest thing. They stayed on. And I got drunk at them. Then God gave me another big break with another big rock and roll show. That's why I first got introduced to Canada. I came up here in the 50s with a group called Billy Ward and the Dominoes. And I started singing for one in this country and I started singing around the world. Now, I'm going to tell you the interesting story about that. So I got with these people and told them that I'd never, ever drink anymore. I told them, see, I have that kind of half-truth honesty. Don't tell them everything. Just tell them enough to get their attention, you know. And don't tell them so much that you'll have to remember a lie. Because remembering lies are hard. But if you tell them a half-truth, they'll supply the rest. You said, that's right. You know, I know I do that. And I told them I would never drink anymore and they would help me get rid of my wife because if I became famous, she would want to take all my money, right? And uh, so they helped me, said, fine, we'll help you get a divorce. So I got a divorce. And for 12 years with that group, I did not drink. But I want to tell you something, the most miserable 12 years of my life. The most miserable. You know, it's the strangest thing when you can't put your track shoes on and run anymore. And you got to stand there with all those feelings that you have. I had those feelings, your body is so skinny, Milton, no, nobody's going to want you. It's the strangest thing, when I drank wine, and I started drinking at the normal age of 13, you know. When I drank, we called it back in those days, Dago Red, that sour wine that kind of locks your jaws when you're it hurts. It absolutely hurt me when I was a kid. But the strangest thing, when it got down in my gut, I could feel the heat. Just coming up. Oh, man, it was wonderful. Just wonderful. And I didn't know that was going to be the answer for me. I can't say, well, oh, I just got to do this all the time. All I knew, remember, see, because I'm not, I'm not that bright. I'm not that bright to think that well, it made me feel complete or made me feel adequate. I didn't know anything about those kinds of words. That I felt adequate. What I do know is that I could put my hands on a block of ice without any gloves, because if you wore gloves, there was something wrong with you, you were kind of like a sissy. And I put my hand on a block of ice, so I might leave the skin down there, but when I took it off, I could say, hot damn, I'm a man. Because I was caught up in the man syndrome. When I was 13 years old, like any other normal kid, I wanted to be a man. When you can't be a man, you can't be a little boy, and you can't be a young man, you are nothing. And you dangle. And you're insane because you don't fit. And when I found Dago Red, something about it made me fit. Alcohol made me fit. I remember when I drank that, that wine, I only weighed 87 pounds, but I felt like Charles Atlas. Charles Atlas, the bodybuilder. My muscles bulged, you know. But if you know the picture of Charles Atlas on the back of the Liberty magazine, there was a little scrawny guy under his armpit. He looked just like that. That was me. That's how I really felt. The little scrawny guy. I wouldn't take my clothes off. Because I'd hear my mother say, I never knew what it meant, but it was bad. I remember nut war, she came, and I'm here, spread eagle. I mean, they got me locked down, because I'm nuts by now. You know, I'm real nuts. And she looked at me with this little dumb church girl, and said, God, that killed me. I didn't know what the hell it meant. 
but I knew it was bad. And it was humiliating. She put her hands on my body when I was a kid, and she'd say, and feel the little bones in my chest. I knew something was wrong with me, but nobody was telling me. You know, so was the shame of my body. I took Alcoholics Anonymous to get me to undress in front of guys. Took that. I don't know, boy, you're a long drunk log. Let me shut up with this and get on. To make a long story short, 12 years of suffering, 12 years of feeling inadequate, 12 years of feeling like a wimp. And I know some of you guys sitting in this audience today, today, feel like a wimp. And you can't tell anybody. You're afraid to tell somebody. You're afraid to walk up to a young lady and say, Hey, I feel like a wimp. Would you like to go out with me? <laughs> yeah? Yeah. You can't do that. It's hard to do that. You can't walk up to another guy and say, Hey, look, dude, I feel less than you. Because you know the case answer he's got to give you. Because he's bad too. He's got to talk to talk and walk to walk. He got to say, well, man, you got to get your shit together. He doesn't know that getting it together will take you back to jail again. He doesn't know that you getting it together will do the same thing that it did always. So you have to sit there on that feeling. I was afraid to go out with girls. Afraid to. I was afraid they would reject me. I'm one of these kind of guys that as a young kid, I used to go to dances, sneak to dances, dress well, look good, and then stand back up against the wall. <laughs> and wait for one to come over and ask me, would you like to dance? <laughs> and you get out there and you know you can't dance. And you get out there and you stumble around, you step on her feet a time or two, and she'll say, well, why don't we quit? And you, and you go back and stand against the wall. So you say, well, she said, I don't want to dance. And you're, because you're who you are, you say, well, who in the hell asked you to ask me to dance with you, honey? And you go back, stand against the wall again. That's what I was like. I was afraid. In 1961, I came up here, played a club called the Cave Supper Club. And I met my present wife. We've been th married 31 years. By the grace of God, the program of Al-Anon and AA. I get a little irritated when people put Al-Anon down. I'll tell you something. I've learned more from her than Al-Anon and how she has shared and walked and lived in our home to keep us together. You see, because I'm destructive, I'm still destructive. I don't want to give you some impression that I got here and quit being destructive. I'm a destructive human being. I screw up wet dreams. That's what I do. You know, I don't have the ability to sit back and just say, enjoy them. I'll find something to screw it and say, what's wrong with you, Milton? What's wrong with you? You're no man. But you see, because of this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because of the program of all and on, we have come together in a way that nobody would think of that possible. When I met her, she was young, naive, and innocent. What else? I'm not going to marry somebody my age by this time. I know better than that. You can't run any games on them. And I'm a game player. So I found somebody young and innocent, and she was different. My wife is Chinese. 
Now, a big problem I had all my life, until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a problem with being black. And it's obvious I'm black. I tried to do everything not to be that. I would not say anything like dis and dim and dat and doze. I would not wear a hat. Because white people did not wear hats. I got so I'd have my hair processed and curled up and all that kind of stuff so I could just shake it and kick it back, you know. You can almost break your neck doing that. I didn't want to be seen as one, and you have seen it many times, as that little black kid with that little picket in curls, sitting on a white picket fence with a slice of watermelon in his hand, just jumping, you know. I didn't want to appear that way. I didn't carry a knife. I didn't carry a gun. I didn't call anybody a mother, uh, you know that word. I didn't call anybody that. Because I tried it, and they'd say, Milton, don't say that, you know how to say it. Black guys would tell me that, you know how to say that, Milton, you don't say it right. I was saying, mother. And they say, no, it's, it's mo, it's mama, you know how you say it. You sl- I didn't know how to do that. It was difficult. It looked like when they, hipness was being kind of people doing this thing, and I'd get it down about a month or two later, they start doing it another kind of way. So I didn't fit. When I got to Alcoholics and I just want to give you a bit of information to tell you what made me real different, I wouldn't even eat watermelon. I don't eat watermelon now as regularly. But the thing about it, the idea of it is long since gone. Because the members of Alcoholics allowed me to tell you what I was like. And I remember when I was four years sober, they gave me a gift of a big watermelon with four candles on it. Today, if you walk in my house, you'll find the collections of watermelons of all kinds. I eat watermelon in public now from time to time. So if you're new here, there is hope. Ruby was perfect for me. Now, I tell you that story about me and watermelon because Ruby was different. She was Chinese, and no Chinese woman is supposed to marry a black musician. Chinese women are supposed to marry Chinese accountants, you know. And uh, her parents didn't quite like it. I remember telling her mother. Her mother came down once to break it up in Seattle, Washington. I was working a club there. And she said to me, well, you know, my daughter's Chinese. (laughs) And I said, well, I I have a lot of friends. Some are Japanese, some are Chinese, some are Jewish, some are Irish. I do them a favor to be a friend. Now, that's sick. That's the kind of sick mind I had. Apparently, I didn't have any friends. But she thought I was just suave and handsome. She went back and told her daughter, you really ought to pick him. He's a nice man. And we ran away and got married. And that started my surrender into Alcoholics Anonymous. Because once again, God had heard my prayer. He had sent me the one woman that would love me like I was. One. She was perfect. God, she was. I could train her. The Bible says, train a child in the way it should go, and well, it depart from you. 
so I could train Ruby. And I know some of you guys would like to get a, a, a woman you could kind of train. You know. Uh, you know, I get to train him. My, my father had great command. My father would, <coughs> and you stopped. <laughs> you know. And you wanted to find a woman that you could do that with, just could anticipate your thinking, say, oh, how high, honey? You know. Well, God sent one to me like that. We got married, and after fashion, we had to, she got pregnant, and in her playful way, she said to me, Milton, you know, when you come off the road, you're singing. Don't call me anymore. She went to one of the surplus stores, and she found a couple of little bells. My oldest daughter was walking by that time. And she said, when you want me, just ring the bell. And I'd lay up in the bed, ding, 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 and she'd come. She'd bring the food and put it in, the, in a tray, and I'd sit on the bed and eat it. And, and my little daughter was on the floor, and she had a little bell, and I'd ring my little bell, ding, 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 and Roseanne would bring me a cup of coffee or whatever it was I wanted. And they'd sit on the floor, and they would watch me while I ate. Man, utopia. Absolute utopia, if you have a mind like mine. And I know some of you are thinking it's something else. Some of you are thinking that it's chauvinistic. Well, I'm here to tell you it isn't chauvinistic, it's just plain sick. You know. <coughs> There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I will share this with you because I think it's important that you know it. I heard it when I first came here, and it hasn't changed one iota. <laughs> and that is that sick people attract sick people. And some of us walk around in alcoholics and I'm saying, Oh, I wish I had a meaningful relationship. I'm not going to get involved with another alcoholic. And they come back, Oh, I've got myself one that isn't an alcoholic. But I'm going to tell you something. If they like you, they're sick. And I will only confirm that with this. If you are honest with them in all of your, in all of your relationship with them and you tell them the truth that you're an alcoholic and that you can only stay sober one day at a time, you cannot guarantee that you will stay sober forever. And you say, will you marry me? And they say, yes, they're sick. Because people who don't have your and my kind of problem can risk thinking in terms of forever. If you ask me to Milton stop drinking, and my mind immediately said, forever? I couldn't understand that. And I drank, I started back drinking in three and a half years. Inside of that marriage, I was back in Alcoholics Anonymous, willing to do anything. I surrendered in the town of Portland, Oregon, the town in which we got married. I surrendered. And I had to go back and tell Ruby she was married to an alcoholic. You see, because I'm one of the clever kind. I never drank when I came in off the road. I drank like a pig when I was out on it. I was consuming a fifth and a half of scotch a day and dropping bennies all the time. And I had to come back and tell her she was married to an alcoholic. At a time in my life, a club owner had walked to me and said, Milton, get off my stage, you're too drunk. And it was all over because one thing I lived by was let me live and die on stage. Let me live and die here. But what I wasn't saying was that I was having trouble off of the stage. 
I was having trouble with life itself. Upon that stage, I could be anything and everything I wanted to be. I sold a whole total illusion. But I had trouble off the stage. And he had taken the one last place for me. The one last place for me that made me feel anywhere near reasonably okay. And I remember, I came home and told her. Now I want to tell you what I was like that night. That night on that stage, I had a 25 in my shirt. I had a 45 under the seat of my car. Now I'm a black that didn't want to carry a gun. I'm a black that didn't want to carry a knife. But alcohol had me doing something I never, ever wanted to do. And I came home and told her she was married to an alcoholic. And at that point in my life, if she wanted to go, that would have been fine. At that point in my life, I'd come to the place where if I stay here in this business one second longer, I will die. It was just as clear and as distinct as that. I will die and I didn't want to die. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because alcohol drove me here because I didn't want to die. And this is about life and death. It is not about anything else but life and death. It seems that it's become diluted through the years. It seems that we think because you can keep coming back that it's all right. We'd love you to keep coming back, but for once in a while, just decide to stay. Just stay. <clears throat> you get so much stuff about, well, it's got to be this, i got to know feelings. You ain't got to go nothing but don't drink. The bottom line is don't drink. No matter what, don't drink. I'm not going to say till your ass falls off. Before it falls off, you don't have to drink. Don't figure anything out. They told me that. Don't try to figure anything out. Because Clancy, I remember telling me, Milton, you do it with a sick tool. It's been anesthetized. It's been drugged out. And a sick tool gives you sick answers. He said, the guys around him said, Milton, if you want to know something about Alcoholics Anonymous, quit listening to you. That's number one. Don't listen to you. And if you're smart like I am, you come up with a big remark, oh, well, well, who will I listen to? And they were nice enough to tell me everybody else except you. But I said, well, what about my wife? He said, and her too. Now, Ruby didn't know anything. But I had to begin to listen to everybody around me, and Alcoholics Anonymous not listen to me. They didn't tell me, you got to read the book. They didn't tell me things like, the steps will keep me sober. The steps will not keep me sober. Not drinking keeps me sober. Not drinking keeps me sober. Not the steps. The steps are designed for me to learn how to be comfortable in my own skin. That's what these steps are about. So that I can remain comfortable in my own skin, so that I don't have to go back to the old track I used to run and drink and use again. If I can find peace within me, not with you. If I can begin to have a relationship with me and not with you. If I can have a relationship with me and not with my wife. I don't work on relationships with other people. I have tried that. I tried to have an honest relationship with my mother, my father, and my brother. And the bottom line with my attempts to doing that kept me drunk. 
And it's an old idea for me to keep pursuing that path. Because the end result will all be the same. The insanity that Alcoholics Anonymous talks to me about is to keep doing the same repeated thing over and over and over again, looking for a different result. Alcoholics Anonymous is very descriptive. That book is very descriptive. I hear people say, well, I'm going crazy. Well, go crazy. It's okay. Don't drink. That's the name of the game. Going crazy doesn't mean you're going to be wrapped tight in a locked ward. AA is very specific about their insanity that they talk about. It's about the guy that kept running out in front of the trolley car getting hit. And he'd come back and want to do it again. I'll do something different. Go out there and get hit again. And he'd go back and lay up and say, well, I'll do it real different this time and get knocked off by a fire engine. Doing the same thing over and over again, looking for a different result. I sold blood over and over again, trying to figure out a way how not to do it again. I kept going to jails over and over again and finding out a new way how I could go back there again. That's the insanity that my book talks about. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1967, and if you're trying to figure that time is 26 years ago, I was willing to do whatever they told me because I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to die. And I stay here because I don't want to die. I will do whatever is necessary not to die. I talk about alcoholics not being everything. It is a whole package here. It is not just a section of packages. It's the whole package. The whole thing, as my guy, a friend of mine used to say, you take, you look at the whole picture here. There were no pieces of Alcoholics Anonymous, you do this. I did whatever they said. I incorporated all of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. And told my wife, so honey, the cornerstone of our marriage is sobriety. That's the corner. You are secondary to this thing. And that may sound like a big, magnificent statement, but it isn't. Because without sobriety, I'd die. Without sobriety, there's no wife. Without sobriety, there's no children. I've had to learn things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you don't learn by thinking, you learn by doing. You can think about these steps all you want to, but you better start doing some of them so they can become a way of life. I don't believe there's something here you work. This becomes a way of life because that's what the book said, this is a new way of life. You must live it, not talk it, live it. And if you don't live it in your home, you don't live it with your children, you've got nothing going for you. You might as well get out and whistle Dixie while you're at it. This is a living program for living people. And you have to learn how to live this thing. Not think it, not talk it, live it. I've had to learn how to live it in my home. And I stress the word learn. I had to put it into practice. I had to do these things. They don't say, here are the steps we studied. They say, here are the steps we took, so you took them. That's what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had to learn, to be honest enough, to tell my wife, I don't know how to be a husband. Teach me. That's risky. That's scary. Especially if she's become a member of Al-Anon. <laughs> because she learned to talk back. She'd learn to tell me what she thought. God, and I'd think I'd be just going in this program with alcoholics. And I'd just go in. This program is working. I'm just going. And I'd think, yo, 
world look at me. I'm working these steps right this day. This time. And I think I'm doing my thing. And she's over in the corner saying, you ain't so hot. You see, I have come to know that I have a disease of perception, too. I have a disease of perception. That's why I need you. That's why I need the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I need a sponsor. That's why I need a guy that can see me when I'm way off in left field and walk up to me and pull my coat there. I admire this. I admire these young people here, these young guys together here. You know why I admire them? Because they've come close together. And one guy, see a guy kind of moving out, he'll pull his coat and say, Hey man, look, this is what you're doing. I need you to tell me that. Because I have a disease of perception. I think I'm doing well. And you may be saying, well, Milton. I need that well, Milton. I need it. That's why I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had to tell my kids I don't know how to be a father. Teach me how to be your kind of father. Risky. To tell the truth and be honest is risky. To be just honest is to tell somebody the truth. That's risky because you're afraid they're going to find you out. It's the only place I know you can go and we can find you out and it's okay. It's the only safest place I can stand here and undress. And let you see me as I see me. You may have a different picture of me altogether. But I'm going to let you know as you see. I'm ready to stand naked here and let you see me because there's nothing you can do to me but continue to love me. And you can't afford resigning me to run you out the door. And I find this, that I can do the same thing out there with John Doe. Because I'm not that different. I can let him know what my feelings are. I can let him know how I feel. You see, because he can't harm me. He is a rank amateur in comparison to the harm I've done to me. They, they just pale in complaint to what I did. I'm, I'm, man, I'm something else. And so they can't touch me. And it seems when I can do that, I find more peace within. I find more of a greater relationship with me. I look in the mirror now sometimes and say, I love you, sweetie. But right on the side of my mirror, I have another little sign. And it reads this way. You are now looking at the problem. I'm here to tell you that I've always been the problem. I always will be the problem. And I can stop looking outside of myself because I have everything I need to function in God's world. Everything. The love I thought I didn't have, I found out that you woke it up. You woke up the love that God gave me from the get-go. I've learned that I have everything I need to function in God's world. He didn't make me incomplete. I thought I was. And my friend Chuck used to say I had to uncover it and discover it. I have it all. And you let me stay, you let me stay here long enough to discover it. To claim it as mine. To claim it as the part of the rich gift. So you can take your love for me and give it back to me. Because I already have mine. And I no longer have to break pieces off and give it away anymore. It's all mine. Yours is just an addition to the love that God gave me.
I will close with this. I could talk on and on about Alcoholics Anonymous, and maybe or not, I don't know whether I've talked over time, under time, or whatever. There used to be an old spiritual we used to sing in church. If any of you know anything about the African history, they brought the Africans over from Africa in slave ships, and they made them work the farms. And they had the cotton balls and all that kind of stuff. They raised tobacco. And it was a horrendous life. And the old master, who would beat them, who would chain them, the cotton fields and the fields would be out there and at the end of the field would be the church. And as the minister would say worse in the church, the church door would be open so the master could see who was working and who wasn't working. They'd pick little excerpts from the Bible up and a word here and a word there. And as they sang those old chants, they began to put some of those words to those chants. And one of the songs that I remember, well, they used to sing, the words went like this. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me, my Lord. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Those old slaves knew all about slavery. They knew about the pain of it. And they were simply saying, rather than spend another day in slavery, they'd rather be dead and buried and in their grave because they could go home to their Lord, their God. Because where God is, freedom is. I began to think about that and I remembered that alcoholics and addicts know all about slavery. All about it. And there's many times you cry and say, oh, I could just be free of this, I'd be all right. You're no different than the slave that was down there under chain. And you say, oh God, if I could just get off this one more time, I'd be all right. So you know all about slavery. Martin Luther King ended one of his many speeches like this. And I've come to know pieces and patches of it from here, now and then, and it's wonderful. He said this in one of his many speeches. He said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Thank you.